0: Thank you, uh, Dr. Greenway, for the invitation. Uh, I am saddened by the circumstances by which it comes about. We are praying for Dr. Dockery, uh, that he is well and uh, recovering well. But any time that I get the honor to open up the Word of God before the people of God, it is something that I will always say yes to. And let us never forget the purpose of why we come together and break open the Word of God. We know through the Word of God itself That every time that the Word of God is rightly divided, and that will be our task this morning, to rightly divide the Word of God, that not only will the people of God come to understand God in a greater capacity, but by understanding Him in a greater capacity, we understand ourselves and how we are to live to magnify Him and to bring Him glory. And so that is our goal this morning. Thank you for the invitation. So this morning, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Exodus Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7 are where we are going to focus this morning. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And as you are turning there, allow me to ask you just a few probing questions so that we will get our start this morning. And the first is this. Do you love God? Do you love God? Second question, and Scripture kind of flips this one on us. Do you know that God loves you? In Christ, do you know this morning for sure that God loves you? You see, scripture says we cannot know the love of God except that Christ or that God first loved us. So, those questions are reversed. So, let me say this Do you know that God loves you in Christ and that you love God? Next, do you believe the promises of God when He has promised that His presence will be with us as believers? Do you believe? that promise when Jesus says to his disciples and through the disciples, to all believers everywhere, I will be with you until the end of the age and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Do you believe that today? Third, do you believe that promise to all believers in Romans 8, that beautiful promise in which God says to all those who love me, who are in Christ, that God causes, not, not allows, not stands back passively, but God causes all things to happen for the ultimate good of those who love him. Do you believe that God has you in his hands and that he will never, no, never let you go? That neither tribulation nor suffering nor famine, nor peril, nor sword, nor circumstances. Do you believe that the living God through Christ has you and he will not let you go and that he will take you through every trial, every tribulation, every circumstance all the way to glory? Do you believe those beautiful, overarching truths this morning? If you're a believer, I hope you said yes. Now let me ask, a set a follow-up question. Have you ever had circumstances in your life that are arduous? Maybe things that you have gone through. Maybe things that have been done to you in which have caused you to doubt the very truths we just espoused. Are there things going on in your life, maybe in your past, maybe today, which are causing you to question, is God really with me? Is God really for me? If, if he is the one who is causing all things in my life, ultimately for my greater good, do I honestly believe him facing the circumstances or going through the things that I have been forced to endure in my past? Do you, has there ever been a moment in which you have doubted those beautiful overarching promises? I know much to my own shame, there have been not just once, probably not twice, probably many times Maybe I didn't verbalize it, maybe I didn't vocalize it, but there have probably been many times in my life where in my mind, in my heart, due to me focusing on minute circumstances at the moment and so fixated upon those things that I forgot the overarching promises of God and his will and his plan for me in Christ. Sometimes I've even denied those things because I'm so fixated on a circumstance of today. Friends, I know I'm not alone in that this morning. The Word of God this morning has a word for us to help us deal in those circumstances. But here's the thing here's the thing this morning. This is going to be a negative example. You see, the Word of God allows the children of God, those of us who have been adopted by the Father through Jesus Christ, He allows us, invites us, in fact, to cry out to Him in trust, in faith, leaning upon Him. But there is just a hair's breadth of a distinction between crying out upon Him and grumbling against His sovereignty grumbling against the circumstances which he is bringing to us. This morning, may we hear from the word of God to see what is right and what is wrong. Our passage is dealing with that Exodus generation. And that Exodus generation, by the time Exodus 17 comes around, they have been through a lot. And by the way, they have already heard most of the promises that you and I have worked through this morning. They they know God's plan for them, at least in a macro uh, piece When when God comes to Moses, when when they cry out to him, when they cry out to him because of their burdens of slavery and their burdens of, of, of work under Egypt and Pharaoh, they cry out for their burdens. They cry out for the Lord to emancipate them. And he hears them. And furthermore, he so hears them that he raises up the deliverer, Moses. And then he, meaning God, gives his plan concerning this people to Moses. He says it in Exodus 3. He says, first, I am the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In verse eight of chapter three says this, and I have come down. Do you hear that? The almighty transcendent God, the one who spoke this world into existence with a mere word, transcendent, yes. But do you hear that? That beautiful imminence. He comes down to work in the very lives and hearts of his people. He comes down, he says to deliver them. Hear this twofold deliverance. I'm going to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and into, he delivers out of slavery and into a promised land, the land of Canaan, the land of their inheritance. That is God's plan for them. He gives it to Moses, assuming that Moses is going to give it to them, which he does in chapter 6. Furthermore, notice what he predicates this plan upon when Moses asks God, God, who will I tell them is sending me? God reveals to them his covenantal name, a name in which the rest of Scripture tells us he did not give it to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, but he's giving it to this Exodus generation. He says in verse three or chapter 3, verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am the Yahweh. I am the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and I am faithful to my word, and it's by this name, By this name, Yahweh, that you will know me as holy and righteous and faithful to all generations. And then down in verse 17, this God who plans and gives his divine plan and the God who predicates this upon his name, his power, his character, his nature is now giving his people a promise in verse 17. And I promise. The the, the New American Standard says, and I say. The ESV here says, I. I promise, this is God giving a promise, giving his word in which in his immutable nature he will not change and he will not break. I promise, here's the twofold deliverance, that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, that land which will belong to you as your inheritance. I promise this. Not only that, he promises them another thing in chapter 6. Verse seven, he promises them that he will enter into covenant with them. Chapter six, verse seven says this, and here you have to listen for the heart of covenant language. It says in verse seven, chapter six, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the hand or under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession, for I am the Lord. When God enters into a covenant with his people, that's the heart. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in your very midst. I promise I'm going to do this for you. And then he proves this promise by signs By miraculous wonders, you and I look at these things, the 10 plagues, the 10 mishpats, the 10 judgments in which God is showing himself over and over and over and over again to be faithful to his people even when they do not deserve it. Chapter 11, speaking of the final plague, that great Passover event, God says in chapter 11, verse 6, there's going to be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been before, nor ever will be again. Verse 7, but notice this distinction. It says in verse 7, but not a dog shall bark, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man nor beast. And here's the purpose of it, so that you will know that God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So that you will know, I'm going to do this sign and this wonder out of my holiness, yes. Out of my righteousness, yes. Out of my love, yes. So that you will know and never question and never doubt that I, the living God, make a distinction between those who are not mine and those who are mine. And he proves it once again with his presence in Exodus 13 We see the Shekinah glory of God. What is the Shekinah glory of God? It's not a denial of his omnipresence, but it is that special uh, covenantal localized presence that God sends down to be with his covenant people. And chapter 13, the last verse of that chapter says this, and the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. You see, they had the promises of God, those same things which I asked you up front. Do you believe that God loves you? Yes. Do you believe that God is for you? Yes. Do you believe that God is with you? Yes. They had it too. Except the very next few chapters begin to describe their circumstances. The first circumstance in which they come to is Exodus 15. You see, the text says that they had been marching for three days and they get to a place where there is water and in their thirst, they see this water, but they cannot drink of it because it is bitter. It is the water of Mara. It is bitter water that they cannot drink. And what do they do in that circumstance? They take their eyes off of the living God who loves them, who has given them promises predicated upon his holy name. They take their eyes off of him and under their thirst and in their thirst, they begin to grumble against God. Exodus 16, they're no longer thirsty, but they are hungry. And they begin to grumble once again. They take their eyes off of the God who loves them, the God who is working for them, the God who has promised a twofold deliverance to deliver them from their enemies and into a promised land. And they grumble again. God, why have you taken us out of Egypt? Why have you brought us to this place? Why are we so hungry, God? Then we come here to Exodus 17, where they begin to grumble against God again. Exodus 17, verse 1, And all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for them to drink. Let's just stop there for a moment. Friends, I'll ask it again. Are there circumstances in our lives which cause us to be so fixated on this one thing with a laser beam focus that we forget the overarching promises that God has given to us? If I'm honest with you, my answer is yes. And if you're being honest with me, your answer is yes. Unfortunately, to our shame, this happens to us all too often. And here, Verse two says, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses saying, give us water to drink. They're focused on the immediate. They're focused on the here and now. And here's the grace. Moses warns them. Moses warns them just as he's already done. He's already warned them in Exodus chapter 16, verse eight. He says, when you grumble about your circumstances and you think you're grumbling to me, I can't give you water. I don't have enough canisters on my fanny pack to give to the whole nation of Israel. I don't even have those portable Lord's Supper packs for you to drink. I don't have it. When you grumble against your circumstances of your provision, of your sustenance, you're not grumbling against your leader. You're grumbling against the sovereign God who has control over all those things. He warned them once in Exodus 16, and he warns them again. He says, Why do you quarrel with me? Last part of verse two. And why do you put the Lord to the test? Friends, do you realize that when we grumble about our circumstances, we grumble about our provision, we grumble about our sustenance, we we grumble about what we make, we grumble about what we don't make, we grumble about our clothes, our not clothes, our car, our not car all the while. Just as the nation of Israel, when they grumble against their sovereign circumstances of God, they're grumbling against the God who made them. And so too are we. Moses warns us, don't do this. Don't cross the line from crying out to God, trusting in him, into grumbling and sinning against God with your grumbling. The question is, will they heed the warning? Sadly. They do not. Verse three. But the people there thirsted. You see that fixation on the circumstance, that fixation on the local thing immediately in front of them. They're not putting their eyes on the God who has promised, the God who has told them his plan, the God who has said, and I predicate this all upon my holy name and character. They thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses. And what do we know grumbling against Moses really is grumbling against God. And said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? And there's one other charge they're bringing against God down in verse 7. Verse 7 says, and he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord. They put the Lord on trial by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see, their circumstances caused them to not rely upon the truths that they knew about God to be true, but rather their fixation on their immediate thing directly in front of their face caused them not only to question, but to deny the truths about God which they know to be true. God isn't even with us. He's not here, the Shekinah glory which we see, that's not really him because if God was with us and he loved us, then we would have food, we would have water, we wouldn't be lacking. What did they forget? They forget the word of God throughout the entirety of scripture says that God tests, not tempts to sin, but tests those whom he loves to see what is really in and here, the nation of Egypt, or sorry, the nation of Israel, fails their test because they are placing God on trial. This is a passage of trial. You can see it with me here. You see when when Moses comes forward to to God and says a little bit more, and they will stone me. That doesn't mean that they're going to throw pebbles at him to drive him away. They are going to kill him. And here's how God responds. By the way, if I were God and I created humanity and my creation not only rebelled against me, but began to question my goodness, my character, my name and my promises, I promise you I would send lightning bolts down from heaven and kill every one of them. It's a good thing I'm not God. And it's a good thing you're not God either. Here's what the gracious sovereign God does. Moses, he says. Fashion a mock courtroom. Walk through the midst of the people and take the elders. In our modern courtrooms, the charges of the people come from the people. So if it's Texas versus Scog, then the, the charges come forth from the people, the government, right? The people. And they are represented by the prosecuting attorneys. In this case, in your mind's eye, think of the elders as the prosecuting attorney who represent the charges from the people. What are the charges? God, you are not a covenant-keeping God. You are not worthy because you have not upheld your end of the bargain. You said you'd be with us. You said you'd deliver us from our, our bondage and into the promised land. We think you have deceived us, tricked us, and brought us out here not to help us, but to kill us. And you said you'd be with us. You are not. God, you are not the faithful God. You are the one who is not faithful. Take the gavel, Moses. You see, every modern courtroom has prosecuting attorneys that bring the charges. In this case, it's unfaithfulness toward the covenant. Every modern courtroom has a a judge. And in this case, you'll know the judge, so to speak, by the one who has the gavel, the rod of justice in his hand. And God says, Moses, take the rod with which you struck the Nile and go. And here is one of the most gracious passages you will see in the entirety of the Old Testament. Chapter 17, verse 6. God speaking and he says behold I will stand before you at the rock the God of the universe the sovereign one the one who created us the one who fashioned us the one who has planned our lives the one who causes us to go through all things is demeaning himself and he says I will come down and I will stand trial at the hands of my own creation and only that He says, I will stand before you at the rock at Horeb. And Moses, you will take your rod and you will strike the rock. What's he saying? You will strike me. This is in Old Testament theology called a trial by ordeal. A trial by ordeal is a divinely God orchestrated event whereby he reveals knowledge that only he knows and he reveals that knowledge so that the people in question will understand the validity of the situation. The biggest one, the easiest one comes from Numbers chapter five. This is where the husband calls, uh, he thinks he has a spirit of jealousy concerning his wife. And he goes, but he has no proof. If he had proof, she'd be killed as an adulteress. But he just has a hunch, a suspicion. And he goes to the priest and say, I think though I have no proof, though I have no witnesses, I think my wife has committed adultery. Trial by ordeal. God says, The priest can create a potion, a concoction, exactly according to the the word of God, Numbers chapter 5. And the woman in question is to take that concocted potion and she is to say this, if I have committed adultery, then even though there are no witnesses outside of God, then when I drink this potion, may I die. May my abdomen swell and my thighs waste away because I'm guilty. If, on the other hand, My husband is a doofus of the highest order and he suspects me though I am innocent of all charges and when I drink this potion, may the world know that I am innocent of the charges and that he is a complete idiot and doofus. Trial by ordeal. God reveals information that only he knows so that the people can rightly deal in the situation. What's the trial by ordeal here? They have charged God. With conduct unbecoming of the righteous Yahweh, they have charged him with abandonment, and they have charged him with breaking the covenant that he himself has created. You're not a, you're not for us; you're against us. Moses, take the rod, strike the rock. If life-giving water, not 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 a dribble not enough so that everyone can come and just scrape their tongue along the side of a rock. If life-giving water gushes forth from this rock so that themselves, their children, and their livestock not only drink, but drink till their heart's content, then you will know something. You will know that I am the living God. I am Yahweh. I've given you my promise based upon who I am and my character and nature, and you'll know that I am for you. If, however, you strike the rock and nothing miraculous happens, you will know that I have deceived you, tricked you, and I am not worthy of your praise. Moses, of course, strikes the rock and what comes forth? Not just a dribble, not just a drop, but life-giving, life-sustaining water flows upon the people so that they all thirst, or they all drink until their thirst is met. Life-saving, life-giving, life-sustaining water pours forth. What does it prove to us? That God is who he says he is, that his promises are true. Yes and amen. He will never break his word, and everything that he has said, he will bring it to pass. Here's the beautiful. Though it looks like we are finished with this passage, we are not. You see, in the Word of God, there's another another premise that we're supposed to work under, and that is this. Jesus says that all Scripture finds its yes and amen in me, that all of the law and all the prophets point forward to me. Now, I'm not trying to say that Jesus is every volcanic rock in a landslide. I'm not trying to say that Jesus is every scale on a goldfish. What I am saying is, teleologically, every single passage finds its yes, its fulfillment, its amen, ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this one, too, does the same. We don't have to look for it. We don't have to dig it up with a map and a flashlight. It's here in the inspired word of God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we will see how the inspired apostle Paul picks up this passage and applies it to you and I. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We know for sure that Paul here is speaking about the Exodus generation that we're dealing with in Exodus 17. We'll pick that up in the first few verses. First, he says, chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. The the real word there is ignorant. I do not want you to be ignorant. You see, they too were going through difficult circumstances. They too were beginning to give in to the flesh, give in to idolatry, what is focusing on self more than Christ. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. What cloud? The Shekinah glory cloud. What sea? The Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. What food? The manna from Exodus 16. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. Which drink? Could be one of two. Could be Exodus 15, the bitter waters of Marah? Or Exodus 17, the water from the rock, Paul tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And the rock that Moses struck, that poured forth life-giving water, was Christ. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Paul also says two times in verse 6 and in verse 11, two times he says this. Now, these things happened as ESV, New American Standard. They both say examples. The Greek, their word is tupos. These things happened as types. Verse 11 says, types for our benefit. So now we go back and say what happened back then. They were doubting who God was. They were doubting his promises. And all that happened as a type, and Christ is the anti-type. He is the fulfillment of that type. How so? Because there was another time when God stood trial at the hands of his own creation. He stood and listened to the charges of, from, the, from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and what was the charge? You have blasphemed. You claim to be God. If Jesus Christ is just a man, if he's just a man, then when he is struck by the hands of men, when he gives up his breath, when he gives up his life, if he's just another dude claiming to be Messiah, then when he dies, he's going to stay dead. If however, if however, when he yields up his last breath, If three days later he rises from the grave in this trial by ordeal, he is going to show you proof positive and to the watching world that he's not just Jesus from Nazareth, that he is God the Son, the Messiah, the one who has conquered death, conquered our enemies of sin and darkness and Satan. Do you hear that deliverance? What was promised one? I promise I will deliver you from your enemies from that which you are enslaved to. Paul says, previously, we were enslaved to sin and bondage. But through Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection from the grave has conquered death, conquered Satan. When Jesus Christ, our rock who was struck and raised from the grave, he not only grants us forgiveness of sins, not only does he grant us and impute us his righteousness, What happens 50 days later at Pentecost? Jesus Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father. And from that position, the Father and the Son send out what? John chapter 4, Jesus had a conversation with a woman at a well. And they were talking about physical water. And they... (laughs) Jesus says to her, if you knew who it was, if you knew who I was, you would not be asking me for this water which will sustain you for a day, for an hour, for a moment, but instead you would be asking me for life-giving water, the water which gives life, the water that sustains life. And it's precisely when God the Father and God the Son send forth the Holy Spirit as the ultimate life-giving water for the people of God so that we have what? So that we have forgiveness of sins. We have righteousness from Christ. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. What does he do? He is there convicting us, leading us into righteousness. But he is also sealing us so that day by day, day by day, those of us who are in Christ by faith, we know that we will never be abandoned. We have that promise from Christ that I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do you believe that? We also have that promise from Romans 8, don't we? Whether sword, whether famine, whether peril, no matter what circumstance that God takes us through, no one, nothing can take us away from God. And we have that other promise, too, that someday he will deliver us into our ultimate promised land of Canaan, ultimate heaven. And there, no more tears, no more sorrows, no more pain. Do not allow the circumstances of today, the pain of today, the sorrows of today, the tears of today, the circumstances of today. So blind us that we are fixated on the here and now and we forget. Our God has proven himself over and over and over and over Again, he is faithful. He is true. And in those moments of trial, in those moments of testing, instead of grumbling, what do we do? We cry out to him, proving our love to him, proving our faith in him, relying upon him, trusting in him at every single step. And when the going gets rough, hear now the application of this passage. Paul gives it to us. First in verse seven, do not become idolaters as they did. Do not focus more on you than the Christ who bought you. Verse eight, we we must not indulge in sexual immorality. Do not yield to the temptation of the flesh. Verse nine, we must not put the Lord to the test. How so? Ten, do not grumble against the Lord as they did. Friends, may I beg you that you not grumble, not you, we. We me included, may we never grumble against the circumstances that our sovereign God is bringing into our life as a test, but may we show ourselves, though hard may it be, to be those who lean upon him and trust him. Why? Verse 13, for God is faithful and he will never let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation he will also provide you a way of escape so that you might be able to endure. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may we endure hardships well by trusting and leaning upon the rock Jesus Christ who was struck